Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. And welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Chat, Catherine of Aragon with Heather Tesco. Those of you who don't follow me on Facebook will probably be saying right now, What the hell? I thought you were going to be starting on Anne Boleyn. You said there would only be four episodes on Catherine. What the hell? Well, strictly speaking, I didn't lie. There were only four episodes proper on Catherine. This is something a little different. A chat episode. I've been wanting to do one of these for some time, but I've found it hard to fit one into my schedule, as well as to find someone willing to be my first chatty slash victim. But since I'm now in the Tudor period, there are suddenly quite a few options. And so I managed to talk Heather Tesco into agreeing to come on the show. Heather is the brains, brawn, and everything else, really, behind the Renaissance English History Podcast, a show dedicated to Tudor history and culture. She's been going now for many years, and covers everything from kings and queens and rebellion, to fashion, music, and literature. You might remember that I did a show for her a few months back on Bessie Blount, and I must have done a good job on her, because here she is on my show. I've put links to her podcast in the show notes, and you should totally go check her out. So, what is the point of a chat episode? Haven't we just spent a ridiculous amount of time on Catherine? Why do we need more? Well, first of all, you can never have enough stuff on Queens. Talk about a truth universally acknowledged. But also, I try to keep my episodes as fact-based as possible. I try to stick to the knowables and the reasonable assumptions, and stay away from wild speculation where possible, because they're unknowable. I try to give you the facts and analysis as best I see them, and try to expose you to opinions that aren't my own. Of course, unconscious bias is a thing, and there's no such thing as an impartial observer, but I do my best. This chat episode, then, is an attempt to do something a little different, to get a little bit more of my own view in there, and debate with an expert in the field. So, without further ado, here it is. I hope you enjoy it. Cool, so I'm uh, here with uh, Heather Tesco of the Renaissance English History Podcast. Heather, how are you today? You know, I am great. How are you doing, James? Uh, no, it could be better. It's all grey outside, damp, wet, English. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's it's snowing here in, in Pennsylvania. I'm in Pennsylvania right now with my family, and, and it's snowing. So um, we can both complain about being cold. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's never cold when it rains here. It's warmer. It's it's when the weather's beautiful, it freezes your butt off. It's always, it's always something to complain about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's very British, isn't it? Yeah, so after we've got the nice British introduction of talking about the weather out of the way, uh, let's move on <laughs> to the history. All right. Well, poor Catherine of Aragon, having been raised in Spain, she probably would have been complaining about the weather quite a lot as well, huh? Yeah, well, you, God, you've already got me on a sidetrack. One of the, um, I used to study Scottish history, and the number of times you get a foreign princess sent over to Scotland and she dies within eight, like eight weeks, and I'm sure just because of the weather, um, didn't so much get that in England. But as you, as you say, we're here to talk about Catherine. As my listeners will know, I just spent a exorbitant amount of time talking about her, more time than I've talked about anyone in my entire life. And I I try to keep my own sort of views, my own sort of opinions, my own wild theories of um, of the women that I cover, all the queens, sort of to myself. I try not to be too crazy. Um, but I thought, now's the time to be crazy? And who better to go be crazy with than uh, the foremost podcasting expert in Tudor history? So... I suppose my first question is, um, what do you what do you think about Catherine? Is she where does she rank for you in uh, in Tudor Queen law? Uh, well, where does she rank? You know, I think she's she's not my favorite of Henry's wives. I have to I have to say, um, Anne of Cleves is my absolute favorite of Henry's wives. But um, in terms of who she is, you know, I think I think you mentioned it one time. There's this. I think with Anne Boleyn too, there's this idea of either villainizing her or making her into a victim of some sort. Like she was this hot headed person who, you know, should have given in, but poor her. Um, or at the same time, turning her into this like feminist hero. And I think we look at these spectrums or, you know, we put her on either side of things. People either say, Oh, you know, poor Catherine, she was sent away to this cold, damp castle in Norfolk or wherever she was sent or, or they say, you know, yeah, she was a warrior, go her. And I think she was probably somewhere like all of us, like all, all humans, we, we have those sides to us. But if you really look at us, we're somewhere in the middle there. So, you know, I think she would have been deeply affected by her, lack of being able to have a son, which, you know, was uh, the main duty that she was brought up to know she was, you know, meant to do, which she she loved her daughter and wanted to protect her daughter and was looking out for her daughter. And, you know, having grown up at the Alhambra in the shadow of this warrior queen for a mother, and then everything she went through during the time after Arthur's death before she married Henry, you know, I think all of these very traumatic sorts of events um, would have really shaped who she was and made her someone who, you know, was was both very strong and perhaps prone to seeing herself as a victim. Um, and I don't know that that's necessarily, you know, either side of her more than the other. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I does definitely to me. I think you've sort of um, said a lot of the reasons why I find her interesting. For me, it's, I mean, I've only covered her so far and you never, I never really find I have a true opinion or truly know a lot of these queens that I cover until I've actually gone into the library and read read all the books. So I haven't got a fully formed opinion of any otherwise except maybe Anne Boleyn. Um, but for me, she's the one, she seems like a normal queen to me. You know, she, you know, she reigned for 20 years. She, she does all the normal queenly things. You know, 
and she does them very well. I think in my second episode on her, I said something along the lines of it, if it wasn't for a massive catalogue, this perfect storm of four or five things that all piled up at the same time, um, she, you know, she would have been a successful queen, you know, even with the problems, and we'll get into it later on, the problems of, uh, of giving birth. But even without that, I mean, we've had, England has had that, I don't know, using the word barren, but queens who have not mm-hmm. had, who did not have children or queens that only gave daughters. Now that has happened before and that hasn't necessarily led to, you know, divorce to everything that happened. You, you, with the other queens, it's difficult to tell because most of them only reign for a very short amount of time. You know, even Anne Boleyn was only queen for like what about three years? Three years, yeah. I mean, you sort of count. You kind of count about the nine years before that, sort of in and with it as well. But you know, Catherine was queen for over half of Henry's reign, just about. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if even if you stop it at when she effectively stopped being queen, if you don't count it from the divorce. I mean, if you count it even from the mid late 1520s, it's still a lot. Um, I'm not even sure if I said anything there. I think I just did a bit of a splurge of consciousness, <laughs> but I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to like rank them yet. Cause I think I'm going to sort of do a big episode at the end where I'm going to do that. So you mentioned, um, the family growing up in the Alhambra, having Isabella of uh, Castile for a mother and mentioned that she uh, grew up in a, in a nice warm place. So unlike most of Henry's queens, barring Anne of Cleves, they came, they were domestic, which is very unusual. But actually, in the previous decades, the sort of marrying domestically became a bit more common. What do you think, right. being Spanish, being from this incredible family of, of these two incredibly strong monarchs in Ferdinand and Isabella, how do you think that affected her when she came to England and had to deal with the various problems she had with, with her first husband dying, being sort of left to rot by Henry the Seventh. Do you think that had a big influence, or do you think it was just kind of how any queen would have would have reacted? Um, I'm not. I'm, I think it affected her later with um, protecting her daughter's rights. To me, that seems like, you know, it's interesting that both her and her sister Juana had to, well, Juana was put aside and, you know, wasn't allowed to get her inheritance. Um, and it's, it's interesting to me that both of these daughters had a mother who was an independent sovereign, you know, reigned on her own, not through her husband. And they would have seen that it wasn't that big of a deal for a woman to reign on her own. It, it wasn't like in England, it was different because as you, as you said, when we were chatting that, you know, the only time this was tried before was with Matilda and Stephen and it all went very, very badly. Um, when Matilda was trying to, to press her claim in what the 12th century, um, but you know it's it's interesting for me seeing how I think for Catherine it wouldn't have been that outrageous to think well okay I haven't given a son it, it, but I have do- you know he has an heir he has Mary and she can reign on her own and you know what's the big deal with that so I think that would have probably shaped her having seen her mother successfully reigning on her own and you know more than successfully you know recapturing Spain and you know uniting Spain finally and you know expelling the Moors and everything like that um and at the same time I think 
unlike some of the domestic wives, well, unlike really any of the domestic wives, she was bred to be a queen. So she knew her role. She had a sense of of her own importance and her own kind of worth as a queen. And, you know, there, there was always that sense of like being regal. And it's funny, because I look my I have this other podcast watching the Tudors where my husband and I rewatch the Tudors and we talk about what was true and what wasn't. And there's all these scenes in the Tudors where Catherine early on when Anne's first rising, like says things to her and calls her a whore and all this. I don't think Catherine would have stooped to that level. Catherine was the daughter of Isabella, you know, she's not going to stoop to making petty conversation with with a lady in waiting like that's just, I don't see that very much in her character. I, I don't know. So to me, she was, you know, very proud. And that would have come from being raised with this, this warrior personality around her and just realizing that she was bred to be a queen and she was bred differently than, you know, normal people. She was raised to go away from her family and leave her family and go rule another country. And you see that very early on with her stepping into, um, you know, with, uh, taking control when Henry was in France and was a 1513, the Battle of Flodden. And, you know, she didn't necessarily lead an army, but she, she was a very successful successful region and he trusted her like that, that I, I don't think he would have trusted Anne Boleyn or you know, Catherine Howard in the same sort of way. That was a long answer to a short question. What do you think? I'm curious what you think. I I didn't, when I first went into this, I mean, like all English um, school children who did history a lot, um, I was sort of bred on an education of Tudors and Nazis. And so I did uh, cover <laughs> Catherine and Anne a lot, and, and all of them, really. Like, I think most countries, they tend to be quite parochial with their history. They tend to think that they, their countries are in a vacuum, and so you only sort of study English history, and you also only study English history in England. So you think that Catherine of Aragon kind of was born when she came over to England in, uh, I can't <laughs> remember, about 1501, I think. Um, and so you don't sort of study her where, where she was born, how she was born. So I found it really interesting um, studying that, and I mean, she had, you were right, she was bred to be a queen. You know, her mother was a, a regnant queen. I think her sisters, uh, I, I tend to go with uh, English, or Juana or, or Joanna, as I tend to call her, was a regnant-ish queen of Spain. Um, she was supposed to be, but she was really, her husband, I think, was really in charge. And then her, I think she had two, no, two other sisters who were both queen of Portugal, I think, if I recall. Mm-hmm. I really should have looked back at my own research before I did this. But No, I, you're you, right. You, you have this... I mean, Castile's been around for a long time, and it isn't quite Spain yet, but it is it is kind of this sort of new dynasty in a way. But it is this incredibly dignified sort of crown on the up, whereas sort of the Tudors are very much starting from the bottom, you know, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And you have this incredibly noble family. And I think that has to... Uh, I don't think I actually use it. The word I keep thinking of with Catherine is sort of dignified. She has this dignity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting what you were saying with sort of her seeing Anne Boleyn, Anne Boleyn as beneath her, uh, or at least beneath her dignity. It's very, th- that kind of sense of honour, that sense of, of, of her own place, her own importance. Is, is not something it's very easy to identify with. This sort of very hierarchical mm-hmm. sense of, of that. And, you know, I called her, I use the word obstinate a lot, which I'm not so totally wild about because I think it's a little bit gendered in a way. It's a bit like using the word bossy. Yeah. Uh, no one calls a man bossy. 
Um, right. And I think obstinate's a bit the same. You get this sort of sense of obstinate. Just of, but she she was a blocker, um, and it's very easy to get very frustrated with her because you think if you just lost a little bit of that sense of self-importance, that regality, you might have it might have all worked out well. But I definitely think I, I agree with you, and it's getting very boring for our listeners, I'm sure. We're both just agreeing on everything. <laughs> Uh, she had this um, this sense of that she was she was meant to be a queen. She was born to be a queen, and she has this sense from her, all her family. And then you have this sense of later on she was the queen. Everyone's you know everyone agreed she was the queen, and then it all all went horribly wrong. Yeah. And speaking of all going horribly wrong, that's an unusually good segue. <laughs> Without wanting to get too graphically into the detail, I want to talk about her virginity. Um, because, again, I didn't Let's really want to... <laughs> Basically, when you read the sort of the, the, um, the secondary literature, you know, the books, you find often the main, the big historians tend to kind of avoid it because it's entirely mm-hmm. speculative and unknowable. And then you get some more of the popular authors, some of the more readable books sort of either hedge their bets as well or decide that they're going to go for it and, and have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going to ask you to put your neck on the line here. Um, <laughs> and don't worry, I'm going to, my neck's right there with you, but I'm going to, you know, you first. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, my <laughs> neck is, I, I think she was a virgin. Um, <laughs> do you? Yes, I do. Uh, I think it's a, a certain bias in that, you know, I'm studying well, it from her perspective. And so it's, you know, I'm, I kind of want to believe her. Um, yeah. And I, I, I think it also comes from the dignity. I don't think it's, I'm not, I'm not, it, was an un, it was an untenable position if she had been with Arthur in the strongest sense of the word, been. Um, <laughs> but I, I just don't think it, it was so against her interests to keep arguing this point. Yeah. Unless you think yeah. she was the most stubborn woman in history. Yeah. I think her argument came from this sense of dignity, this sense of she knew she was. And so that, that for me makes me believe her. Yeah. And I, I also, I agree with you there. And also just, you know, the, the things that she said to priests, she was a very devout person. Um, I, and, you know, making those kinds of confessions, we, kind of in our 21st century post-enlightenment kind of thinking don't put as much credence into, you know, if somebody says something in confessional, oh, well, who knows if it's true or not. But at that time, like, that was your eternal soul in peril. And uh, I love that word peril when I talk about it, because it reminds me of like Monty Python. And let me have just a little bit more peril. No, it's too perilous. Um, and I can't say the word peril without without saying that. Um but, you know, I, I feel like I don't think that she would have taken that risk with her soul if it wasn't, you know, I don't think she would have lied about that being as devout as she was. Also, you know, Arthur was was quite sick. I, I don't know. To me, him coming out and boasting in the morning that he'd been to Spain, he was very thirsty because he'd been to Spain the night before. I mean, that's just a, a you know, that's just what teenagers do. That that doesn't say anything. That just means he was boasting. And in fact, that would actually being a pop psychologist of a 16 year old boy, which I have absolutely no experience of. So I really am just talking out of my head here. But it seems to be like, 
it seems like that might be a little bit more um, trying to prove something and it would actually lean more to in favor of her not having had sex with him because he had to go out and make that boast about about it. I, I you know, I don't know, then you're really getting deep. But to me, I, I don't think that that boast he made means anything. And, and he was quite ill. I don't know that he even, you know, would have been able to I don't you know I don't know. Yeah, I, I just I, I'm just not buying it. I don't know. Well, I mean, uh, I unlike you have great experience of being a 16 year old boy. Uh, and I, I entirely agree with you. But I, I, it's, I mean, it's not even that unusual, uh, to have marriages not consummated immediately. Uh, you get this with, um, uh, Henry and Anne of Cleves as well. You know, they were married right. for, for, uh, God, really losing my cred here as a his- history podcaster. It, it was about, what, about six, nine months? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I mean, he, he changed his mind pretty quickly, but there is at least, there is right. a theory that part of the problem was that he couldn't perform, for want of a better word, on the wedding night. Right. And obviously he blamed Anne of Cleves for being, being a bit of a munter and, uh, and right. not it being his own problem. And I think, I, I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Arthur either couldn't perform because of illness or couldn't perform because of, didn't want to or, could, or, you know, or, or something like that. I don't think it's, it's not that unusual in, in history for, for consummation to be delayed. Uh, I think, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, if my memory serves, if it isn't true, I'll edit this bit out. But um, with her first husband, you get this as well. Husbands is not that interested in the whole thing. And, you know, right. Arthur was supposed to ha- have sex with her. And so he made this boast, um, which appears in a couple of sources, I think. So we we kind of agree here. We agree on a lot, don't we? I think we read the same books, I think is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, have have you read... The, um, you know, Alison Weir is doing that, the series, The Six Tudor Queens, where it's historical fiction, but it's Alison Weir, so she knows a lot. And, um, obviously she is the grandmother of Tudor Queens. Um, she, her first book on Catherine Varagon came out last year, and it was really, really an interesting view of things from Catherine's perspective. And it, it wasn't like kind of quote unquote normal historical fiction that's just kind of, um, romanticized everything. It, it was really based in solid work. It was really interesting. Anyway, I, I don't know if you've read it. It's on my, it's on my list. I read her, um, her book on like, it's called something like Six Wives. They're all called Six Wives or something yeah, like yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so I, I used yeah. her a lot because although I find sometimes she can, she can sort of move away from the cold hard fact into a bit of wild speculation every now and again. She's very, very good at, um, I tend to use her books a lot for, um, picking out sources because her books are huge. And so she likes right. to list all the sources and I love, I love to read out a good long quote. Um, and she's really <laughs> useful for that. Uh, but I, I generally find I try not to read too much historical fiction, um, outside of, outside of work because I spend, <laughs> I spend my, my actual job and then my podcasting job reading history. And so I, I try to um, mm. read something else. Mix Otherwise I find I just, uh, I think my fiance might punch me in the face if I uh, spend all my time just talking about history. She's uh, she's more of an art historian. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you uh, another question now. I have a feeling you're going to agree with this on this. So uh, Catherine did have uh, one surviving child with Henry. It was Mary. And it's obviously, it's a 50, 50 shot more or less give or take that Mary mm. turned out to be a girl uh, and not a son. And she did have, she had many stillbirths. And then she had one son who lived, I think, for a, a few hours. And then had Henry Duke of Cornwall, who lived 
for a little bit longer, but not very long at all, really. Uh, it was a few weeks. Mm-hmm. What do you think would have happened both at the time and sort of now, and this is wild speculation now, had had the Duke of Cornwall or another one of the sons survived? Do you think that the whole Anne Boleyn thing would have even, even happened? No. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. No, I don't think it would have. Do you, do you do you agree? I mean, I, I think, you know, Henry might have met Anne Boleyn and might have wanted to find another way to put aside his wife. But, um, you know, his whole, he would have had to have really thought out a, a different method of it. His His whole reasoning was, you know, the Leviticus quote and the fact that he didn't have children. And, you know, I think this is getting into Henry, but I really think that Henry convinced himself of that as time went on. I, I think, you know, Henry had this, this um, tendency to see himself as a victim as well. And um, I, I think that he really, I, I don't know that he believed it at first, but I think by the end, he, he, he really believed that. Um, he tricked himself into thinking it, I, I think. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I also think, you know, if Catherine had had a, a son that had lived, she wouldn't have necessarily needed to be as defensive. You know, I think her position was always going to be a little bit mm, insecure until she had that. And she probably knew that, um, that, you know, if she had had a son, maybe she wouldn't have felt the need. Maybe she could have worked something out with Henry. Maybe Henry would have been willing to, even if he put her aside to recognize the son's rights to rule before. I think that I'm really rambling right now. I think that part of why she was as stubborn as she was, was she was trying to protect Mary's rights. And if she had had a son, um, she might not have had to have protected the son's rights as much because that would have just been a given. I don't know. Um, I'm, I, but I don't think it would have played out the same at all. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I think it's difficult. I, the reason why I ask this question, because it does seem like a super, super stupid question. But the reason is because, you know, Queen's position is secured by having a healthy son. You know, any anyone who studied any period of 
of sort of royal history knows sort of knows that. But the reason why I ask is, and I don't want to talk too much about Anne Boleyn because I want to keep this fairly focused on Catherine. But you have this view that people tend to have of Anne Boleyn, and you get this a lot of the time in TV shows like The Tudors. Is Anne Boleyn's this seductress, this unstoppable sexual force of nature that you know Henry never yeah. stood a chance once Anne got got her claws into him. And I don't particularly like this image because it's rather speaks to a rather unpleasant thing in the male psyche, I think. But mm-hmm. you know, Anne Boleyn, you could you could argue that Anne Boleyn perhaps would not have seen an opportunity to become queen had Catherine not been, had, you know, in a difficult position. But she might still have tried her best. And there are queens, even with sons, who fa- found themselves completely sidelined by mistresses. And and the other problems would still been there. You know, it wasn't Catherine's position wasn't just hurt by not having a son. She was also hurt by the changing diplomatic system on the continent with... You know, right. Charles repudiating um, their daughter Mary as a wife, and then becoming this sort of big, scary master of Europe. It does just because the only you still have Anne, you still have that, you still have Wolsey as well, who he wasn't as anti-Catherine as as Catherine thought, but he certainly didn't. He certainly wanted to sideline her. So uh, the reason why I ask mm-hmm. is, do you think it was? almost purely the son issue that that tipped Henry over. Well, no, I guess my question then is, like, even had all that happened, I guess my thinking is, would Catherine have reacted differently if she had had a son whose rights she knew were going to be protected? Because I could see Henry sidelining her and saying, like, you know, whatever reason Charles did this and Woolsey says this and blah, 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 and trying to set her aside. And if she knew that her son's rights were going to be protected as the heir, I could see her perhaps having a different reaction than she had. I think a lot of her reaction was protecting Mary. But, you know, I I don't know. What do you think? I, I think it's... I think it started, I think it was a combination of, of protecting herself as well. Well, not so much herself in terms of her own life. I don't think that actually was so much her concern. Um, but protecting her own position, you know, protecting the fact that, mm-hmm. you know, she was married before God. Uh, she was made queen in a, a religious ceremony. And so she was kind of protecting that in as much as, as much as anything, and also protecting her, you know, Mary's legitimacy. But I do think it's yeah. it's very easy to say, you know, if she just had a son, everything would have been hunky dory. Uh, I don't, I don't think that is the case. I think, I think if she'd had a son, she, I think she probably would have, if she had died at the same time, uh, died a queen and died Henry's wife. But I don't think she would have been the same queen she was in the in the 1510s you know ruling mm-hmm. england while henry was abroad you know sending troops to flodden um serving almost you know alongside the the actual ambassadors as as her father and then her nephew's representative and of course she did actually serve as an ambassador very early on and and so that's 
I, I think it's... Catherine, I don't think, would have had a particularly great time in the 1520s and 30s, even if she had had one or two sons, I guess, is my is my view. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, and then uh, finally, uh, we've sort of touched upon this a, a little bit already, because all things are connected. I, and I mentioned earlier that I find sometimes Catherine an incredibly frustrating woman, because she mm. is so up she's so set she's the immovable object she won't give in on anything she won't compromise and you know it did hurt her very much it hurt her long term if she had given in to henry's demands you know uh, in the first or second time of asking she could have lived out a, a a very comfortable life mary would have been disinherited but she still well, she would have been not disinherited as such, but she wouldn't never become a queen. But she still, I imagine, would have been given a title, given a nice marriage, and lived out a very nice life. Uh, and mm-hmm. the obvious comparison to make here is with Anne of Cleves, who you've already mentioned right. as your as your personal fave. So do you want to sort of maybe sort of compare the two, their two different reactions to being rejected by Henry? Well, I think you... I think you couldn't really Catherine Catherine was experiencing it for the first time and had Catherine's um experience to look at and to learn from you know so um Anne was able to recognize very early that she was not going to win this battle and I don't think that Catherine knew that you know even until the end but something that I would like to talk I would like to hear your opinion about as well is you know I feel like until the very end Catherine didn't blame Henry. She blamed all of his advisors, the people who were telling him this and Anne Boleyn and Woolsey and all the different people. Um, she, you know, her, the last letter to him that says, you know, this above all else, I, you know, my eyes desire to see you before anything else. And in her letter on her deathbed that she wrote to him. And, you know, even if that's not completely a hundred percent true, I, it does seem like she, she didn't, she was almost blind to, him and his faults. She, I think that's something that can happen when you marry somebody. Um, I've been married for 10 years and, you know, I still see my husband as the 26 year old guy he was when I met him. And hopefully he still sees me as the 20 something that he, that I was when he met me. Um, but you know, I, I think you can, after you're with somebody for that long, you can be blinded to their faults and to the changes that have happened to them. And it's easier from a from your for yourself from a psychological perspective to to blame somebody else and i think that she blamed you know the his advisors and until the end and i i think Anne was able to look at things without that emotional baggage and just look at things much more pragmatically and and see okay i'm this is how this is and i'm not gonna win this one um so i think it made it a lot easier for her emotionally and and she had less to to lose really but i think also the Anne example does show that Henry could be very generous if he got his way. Like if you didn't challenge him, he he was fine. It was her obstinacy that drove him so crazy. So I'm interested to hear what you think about how, you know, how she felt about him until the end and, and what may have been different. Well, I think also Anne of Cleves, she had the example of Catherine, but I think almost more importantly, she had the example of Anne Boleyn. 
um, to uh, kind of bear both. But, you know, the, the, the example of Catherine shows that Henry was not above kind of neglecting his wife to death, whereas Anne Boleyn showed he had no objection to killing yeah. his wife to death. I'm always right. slightly, I'm always very suspicious when people, you see in the sources, people will say, oh, these people weren't blaming the king, they were blaming advisors, because it's kind of, it's the intelligent, you see this with the Peasants' Revolt, you see it in the Russian Revolution, you see it all through history. When you have a monarch, everyone's always blaming the advisors and never the monarch. And so, because it's the way out, you know, you want to give, if you want the king to do something, you you don't say, I think you made this terrible decision. I think you are killing us all. You say, you're right. great. You're great. You're really great. You're like, God great. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it's it's your advisor. It's... Woolsey, it's what well then that's what the all of the rebellions like the pe- the peasant or the pilgrimage of grace wasn't against henry it was against the protestant advisors who were you know mm. advising him and stuff so i yeah i get that but uh, having said all of that uh i on this occasion i so you, usually i'm very suspicious of that but on this occasion i think you're right and i think catherine seems to be someone who was very quick to blame um and she was very quick to blame people who weren't the real people to blame. You see this. You see this with the fact that she got on with none until um, Chapuis came along as as the imperial ambassador. But you see it with all the other ambassadors that came uh, right the way back to when she first married Arthur. She hated them all. She thought they were all terrible people who were just getting in her way. Uh, and she did reserve some um, sharp words for her father as well. But she tended to blame them for her problems. Again, even before the whole divorce problem started, you get this problem with she never got on with Woolsey. And I think with Woolsey, it was more of um, a power struggle because Woolsey sort of represented the pro-France faction and Catherine was the head of the pro-Spain, pro-Empire faction. And so I think she was very quick to blame generally people who weren't who it was easier for her to blame because I think it's very difficult for her to blame Henry, mm-hmm. a man whom she, I think you can say that she she loved him in a um, in in a sort of Renaissance, medieval, early modern sense rather than kind of the more modern sense. Um, I think she couldn't believe that a, a king would treat a queen this way. And you see it again with Henry. He he has these moments. He he like he loved to portray himself as this big, virile, masculine man. I don't know why I'm really puffing my chest out and clenching my fists here. No <laughs> one can see it, but maybe you could hear it in my voice. She, yeah, he he loved to be this man of action, this sporting man, this Renaissance prince. And yet you read the sources, and again, you can't b- believe everything you read. But you see this man browbeat by these two. You know, incredibly forceful, strong women, very, very different women, Catherine and, and Anne Boleyn. But he can't really compete with them. And because he's kind of in, enthralled to them both and I think intimidated by them both, he, he comes across sometimes as very, as very weak. And so it's sort of, you can see, I can see why Catherine would think that Henry was being 
misled because he often comes across as being someone who didn't who who could be persuaded of things mm-hmm. and and so i think i think that 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 would be that'll be my answer to the question before i spend another 5 minutes rambling it's <laughs> <laughs> interesting we we agree on quite a lot about her don't we i think to be honest there's quite Unlike with Anne Boleyn, I think there is quite a historical consensus nowadays on Catherine. I think the the modern trend, without wanting to get too deep into historiography, because I know that bores people, and it sure did bore me when I studied history. But you don't have we're now in this you don't you don't have this sort of big debate over her. I think you now definitely see the the fem, what I call the feminist school uh, of sort of historical, at least historical commentary, if not, like, true, nerdy, academic, historical discourse, which was sort of talking about this about 10, 15 years ago, as usual, popular history is about usually about 10 years behind. You have, we now like to see, I think it's gone almost too far sometimes in that we like to see everything that the Queen does or the woman does as this positive, you know, strong thing. And so even when they make a bad decision, we sort of praise it and say that was a great decision there. It was just that she was thwarted by the man. And mm-hmm. and so and but I think we're in this school now where where we we're we're kind of recognizing that this view of Catherine the victim is not really satisfactory. Just just thinking yeah. thinking of her as the classic jilted woman. Um, because it's yeah. such an easy, it's a really easy caricature. It's so, it's so ubiquitous in culture to have, you know, the wronged woman by, you know, the husband, the powerful husband and his mistress. It's such an easy thing to put in a box and say, this is what happened. And I think now the general consensus amongst people who've Who've done, you know, who've like you and I have spent a lot of time reading about this, and and the people who spent a lot of time writing about it is this more complete, holistic view of Catherine, which sees her mm-hmm. as, mm-hmm. and then you start to pick everything out and you say, oh, actually, you know, she was pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she was a pretty well. You know, it's it's easy with history to want to look back and put things in easy to understand box. It's easy with anything. It's what we want to do is take something and put it in the box that we know. And we know the the narrative of the wronged, jilted woman. And we also know the narrative of the really strong woman. And, you know, nobody fits any one box or any two boxes perfectly. You know, we're all a spectrum. And uh, from 500 years later, it it's easy to go back and say, okay, well, this is the narrative. But I think you're right. More and more people now are seeing it as... As a spectrum, yeah, and and it's yeah, it's completely wrong to say. You know, there's a question I have not asked, which I've heard asked before, which is, you know, is was Catherine of Aragon a feminist? And I I always mm-hmm. say you can't really use that word, yeah. feminism. I I don't think you can even start to use that word until about the 20th century because it's 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 a word that she would not have understood. It's a concept mm-hmm. she would not have understood. Um, the broad sentiments of it, maybe, mm-hmm. but like the no- you know, the notion of of female equality is something complete, you know, as we would understand it, and which we even now don't have, is is something completely foreign. So you, you have to 
I can't remember who said this, but there's a, a, a famous quote that I've seen in a few books now, which is, you know, the, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and something a lot of my, my teachers have always said to me is you can't think of these people as like you because yeah. they're not. No. They thought completely differently. They are. It's almost like talking about a different species to a certain degree. You know, they yeah. are all human. Um, they all had, you know, two legs, two two arms, um, and we would recognise them and probably could have a conversation with them, although I think they'd think we talked kind of weird <laughs> and dressed kind of weird. Yeah. But the it's just like, it's a foreign country. It's a completely foreign mindset. Um, and... I think with that, because I've officially run out of things to say. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I think I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on for well, being my first ever interviewee. Thank and- you for coming on for me too, because I'm going to put this out to my listeners. So this is this is great. I I um I love your show. You know, I I think I first emailed you about a year and a half ago when it was still you were still somewhere in the 1300s. I I think, and uh, I love your show, and so I'm I'm really happy that we're doing something together finally. Cool. So, do you want to for your listeners quickly? Oh, sorry, for my listeners, do you want to quickly say where they can find you in your what three podcasts now? No, I just have two. I just have two. So um, the Renaissance English History Podcast is my main podcast, and that's EnglandCast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D, EnglandCast.com. And then I just started this watching the Tudors because I am shamelessly capitalizing on the popularity of the Tudors. So every week or every couple of weeks, my husband, who knows nothing about the Tudors at all, he and I watch an episode of the Tudors, and then I talk about what was true, and he asks me questions about what was true and what wasn't true. And that's also on the EnglandCast.com site as well so you can get all the links and everything there so how about you yeah tell me about where to find you then uh for the benefit of for the benefit of uh, heather's listeners i did the the queens of england podcast it's my one and only it's my baby uh got the website which is www.queensofenglandpodcast.com don't know why i stumbled on that uh i'm also you know all over the social medias uh, if you just type queens of england podcast into facebook and twitter you'll find me there uh, I'm currently plowing through the Tudors, uh, just done four episodes on Catherine. And after this, I'm about to do, uh, th- maybe three episodes on Anne Boleyn. I would say maybe because I was supposed to only do three on Catherine and then st- spend an entire episode really just covering about 1529 to about 1533. Mm. Um, because you know, I never know how much it's going to be, but I think it's going to be just be three on Anne. Uh, and then I'm going to be keeping going straight through to uh, the um, the very late 17th century. Wow. Cool. Exciting. Well, thank you so much for this. Um, it's been so fun to talk to you. Thanks, Heather. That was a lot of fun. Before I go, though, today, I have some news for you all, or at least news for those of you who don't follow me on social media, which you totally should, because I release all my news on there first, and you can find information about where to find it all in the show notes. Anyway, by virtue of coincidence and providence, I will be posting four, yes, four, shows this month. Crazy. I didn't think it was fair to make you wait in the two weeks for the first episode of Anne Boleyn, so that will be coming next week, and then part two will be two weeks after that as usual. But, as we all know, Valentine's Day is coming up, 
and I thought it would be a perfect day for me to post a little supplemental on Henry VIII's love letters to Anne Boleyn. Well, I say love, but some of it is pure smut. So yeah, four episodes this month. Who says Christmas only comes once a year? So the next time you hear me, it'll be the first... It will be next week for part one of the miniseries on Anne Boleyn, probably the most talked about queen in English history. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.